welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. <laughs> hey, Julia. Hello, Lauren. So, um, as you remember, my last topic was about the Kardashians. <laughs> and I am still getting a lot of fallout about that. I don't know. We're recording this all at once. But, um, <laughs> why so, you gotta bring the, lose the illusion? Uh, oh, sorry. We're, I'm... <laughs> We recorded this two and a half hours before we released it. It is now Tuesday. No. Um, so I decided, you know, I was like, okay, I got the Kardashians. It's kind of lowbrow. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do something like really, really highbrow. Yeah. So initially I was going to do German romanticism. Ah, uh, yes. yes. The most Classic. romantic of romanticisms. Absolutely. And that's because I love Caspar David Friedrich. Uh, one of my uh, favorite yes. artists who uh Sturm und Drang artists of course uh who um was really a purveyor of the sublime but uh I wrote one and one half pages of that and then I was like no this isn't gonna work (laughs) it was was too high level I overcompensated I went above and beyond so um but I really wanted to do something a little bit more artistic a little bit something a little different to cleanse the palate if Ah, you will so I finally settled on um the arts and crafts movement. Ooh. We're familiar with that yes. here in Rochester. Arts and crafts is very big on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, arts and crafts is very big in uh, New York State mm-hmm. because of the Stickleys, because that's where Gustav Stickley had his, in Syracuse, he had his, um, his factory. Yes. So... Gustav. So sounds like you're getting some German up in here anyway. Yeah, a little bit, I guess. It's mostly British, but we'll get there. <laughs> so, okay. In order to get a sense of what the arts and crafts movement was about, we got to talk about what it was growing out of. Okay. So to begin with, here we are in 19th century Britain. Okay. The Industrial Revolution is in full swing, and factories and people are hustling and bustling with the making of mass-produced materials, such as furniture, kitchen appliances, and new inventions of the day. Uh, And nothing showed off the industriousness of the Victorian period better than the Great Exhibition of 1851. (gasps) Did you take that learnedly quiz? No, I did not. There was a one day recently about the Exhibition of 1851. Are you serious? I had no idea. I've been so busy at work, I haven't even looked at Learned League. I know. It sucks that I'm so busy. Sorry. (sighs) It's okay. Anyway. Um, Okay. So although the Great Exhibition was a platform on which countries from around the world could display their achievements, Britain sought to prove its own superiority. Britain also sought to provide the world with the hope of a better future. Europe had just struggled through two difficult decades of political and social upheaval, and now Britain hoped to show that technology, particularly its own, was the key to a better future. So a special building was constructed, nicknamed the Crystal Palace or the Great Shalimar, uh, that was built to house the show, completed from drawing to finish in nine months. It was like super fast. So it took the form of a massive glass house, 1,840 feet long, by 454 feet wide and was constructed from cast iron frame components and glass made almost exclusively in Birmingham and Smethwick. From the interior, the building's large size was emphasized with trees and statues, and this served not only to add beauty to the spectacle, but to also demonstrate man's triumph over nature, which was like a big deal during that time. They were like, we destroyed nature and now we own it. Were there any signs up that people weren't allowed to throw rocks? Yes, actually, because people should not throw rocks in glass houses. Um, The Crystal Palace was an enormous success, considered an architectural marvel, but also an engineering triumph that showed the importance of the exhibition itself. Uh, The building was later moved and re-erected in 1854 in enlarged form at Sydenham Hall in South London, an area that was renamed Crystal Palace, but it was destroyed by fire on November 30th, 1936. So I know. So it's only uh, remains in uh, pictures that you can see. Well, that's cool. So yeah, it's really cool. And it was huge. And it was like, I mean, it's, it was a crystal palace. It was really cool. So 6 million people equivalent to a third of the entire population of Britain at the time visited the great exhibition. Whoa. Yeah. Like a third of the country. The th- a third of the country came to the just exhibition. Just in 1851? Um, yes. Just <gasps> in 1851. Um, the average daily attendance was 42,831 with a peak attendance of 109,915 on October 7th. Jeez. The event made a surplus of 186,000 pounds, which is 18,370,000 pounds, 
in 2015. Wow. Uh, and that was used to found the Victorian Albert Museum, the Science Museum, and the Natural History Museum. Oh, that's cool. I didn't yeah. realize that. Uh, they were all built in the area to the south of the exhibition, named uh, nicknamed Albertopolis. <gasps> Uh, alongside it. the Imperial Institute. I know, isn't that cute? The remaining surplus was used to set up an educational trust to provide grants and scholarships for industrial research, which it continues to do so this today. Great. Um, apparently, Queen Victoria loved the Great Exhibition. She mm-hmm. brought her family three times and made sure to uh, fund as much as she possibly could. Great. So the official descriptive and illustrated catalog of the event lists exhibitors not only from throughout Britain, but also from its colonies and dependencies and 44 foreign states in Europe and the Americas. Numbering 13,000 in total, the exhibits include a jacquard loom, an envelope machine, kitchen appliances, steel making displays, and a reaping machine that was sent from the United States. Was it? Oh. Oh, man. The I'm cotton trying to gin? remember. <laughs> Are you thinking of the cotton gin? No, I was trying to think of the Jethro Tull. Is he the one that created the... Oh, I don't know. The, the reaping machine? The, yeah. I don't know. We'll have to look that up. I didn't know. I thought Jethro Tull was just the flute band. I'm just playing Hocus Pocus by oh. Focus now. <laughs> it was on in the Wegmans today. Oh, did you really? Oh, my God. That's weird. Oh. Um, other exhibits for the Great Exhibition w- include the Koh Noor, which was the largest <gasps> diamond yes! at the time that was mm-hmm. on display, and uh, it was one of the most popular attractions in the India exhibit. The Darya e Noor, which was uh, one of the rare pink, pale pink diamonds in the world. Mm. Uh, Alfred Charles Hobbs used the exhibition to demonstrate the inadequacy of several respected locks of the day. Uh, Frederick Bakewell demonstrated a precursor to today's fax machine. <laughs> Which what? is which is really cool. Uh, William Chamberlain Jr. of Sussex exhibited what may have been the world's first voting machine, which counted votes automatically and employed an interlocking system to prevent overvoting. Oh, Isn't that's that cool? really cool. Also, the first modern pay toilets were installed. Great. With 827,280 visitors paying the one penny fee to use them. The toilets remained even after the exhibition was dismantled. Uh, the term spending a penny became a euphemism for using a toilet. <laughs> So if you hear a British person say, I'm going to go spend a penny, it means they're going to go to the bathroom. That's pretty interesting because this was probably the first time many of them had gone in like a in a toilet. dedicated Space. water closet. Yes, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. So all of these cool things are happening and being shown off in this giant glass palace. Uh, and most people are loving it. But of course, there's a bunch of naysayers in the mix. Oh, sure. Why not? Um, so the exhibition caused controversy as it, as its opening approached. Some conservatives feared that the mass of visitors might become a revolutionary mob, because of course, uh, while radicals such as Karl Marx saw the exhibition as an emblem of a capitalist fetishism of commodities. Well, I guess it was still, there were still people alive who had experienced like the American revolution and the French revolution. So I can see a little bit of how they would kind of like fear a group of people, a group of people gathering in one place mm-hmm. yeah. to celebrate something exactly. might be a little frightening. Yeah. But I do not like that. People assembling. Ugh. I do not like assembly. Well, Karl Marx didn't like anything. No, Karl Marx didn't like anything. Poor guy. Um, but however, no one was more horrified by the great exhibition than the arts and crafters. Horrified. Horrified. Okay. So they considered the exhibited technology to be excessively ornate, artificial, and ignorant of the qualities of the materials used. Hmm. The art historian Nicholas Pevsner has said the exhibits in the Great Exhibition showed ignorance of that basic need in creating patterns, the integrity of the surface, and vulgarity in detail. Design reform began with the organizers of the exhibition itself. Henry Cole, Owen Jones, Matthew Digby Wyatt, and Richard Redgrave, who deprecated excessive ornament and impractical and badly made things. The organizers were unanimous in their condemnation of the exhibits. Owen Jones, for example, complained that the architect, the upholsterer, the paper stainer, the weaver, the calico printer, and the potter produce an art novelty without beauty or beauty without intelligence. Wow. So Owen Jones declared that ornament must be secondary to the thing decorated, that there must be fitness in the ornament to the thing ornamented, and that wallpapers and carpets must not have any pattern suggestive of anything but a level or plane. Where a fabric or wallpaper Hmm. in the Great Exhibition might be decorated with a natural motif made to look as real as possible, these writers advocated flat and simplified natural motifs. 
Redgrave insisted that style demanded sound construction before ornamentation and a proper awareness of the quality of materials used. Utility must have precedence over ornamentation. So they were also very like minimalist. Minimalist, utilitarian. Utilitarian. So all in all, these guys wanted high quality materials in the simplest designs possible in order to emphasize the natural beauty of the materials and function of the object itself. Sounds great. Sounds great. So the arts and crafts philosophy derived in large measure from John Rushkin's social criticism, which related the moral and social health of a nation to the qualities of its architecture and to the nature of work. Okay. So Ruskin considered the sort of mechanized production and division of labor that had been created in the industrial revolution to be servile labor. And he thought that a healthy and moral society required independent workers who designed the things they made. So this pride of object. Right. So you're a craft. So that's where the arts and crafts part comes from. So like if you're somebody who makes something, it shouldn't be mass produced where you don't have any like emotional attachment to it because that's what degrades society as a whole. So they were not fans of industrialization. No, they were not. Uh, His followers favored craft production over industrial manufacture and were concerned about the loss of traditional skills, but they were arguably more troubled by the effects of the factory system than by machinery itself. And William Morris's idea of handicraft was essentially work without any division of labor rather than the work without any sort of machinery. So it was, a, it was for William Morris, who I'll talk about like right now, was more about <laughs> talking like, about him right now, talking about him. Here I go. <laughs> <laughs> he was more about like, if you divide the labor, then no one has pride in their oh, okay. work than machinery specifically. So there was a little bit of division in terms okay. of like opinions about that. So William Morris, who was William Morris? He was the towering figure in the late 19th century design and was the main influence on the arts and crafts movement. The aesthetic and social vision of the arts and crafts movement derived from ideas he developed in the 1850s with a group of students at the University of Oxford, who combined a love of romantic literature with a commitment to social reform. Uh, By 1855, they had discovered Ruskin and believing there to be a contrast between the barbarity of contemporary art and the painters preceding Raphael, they formed themselves into the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood to pursue their artistic aims. You've heard of the pre-Raphaelites because you've seen those posters of like Ophelia being drowned where it's like these beautiful redheaded women and like these chivalric like knights and they're like holding these, they're always like blonde or redheaded British women with like beautiful like flowers Mm -hmm. and woods around them, that kind of thing. The pre-Raphaelites were like big into that. Like Lady of Shalott. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So they were super into medievalism. So the medievalism. dead drowned women. Yes, dead drowned (laughs) women. Yep. Huh. So, so um, the medievalism of Mallory's Mort de Arthur set the standard for their early style. And in Edward Byrne Jones, who is one of the artists, his words, they intended to wage holy warfare against the age. So they were looking back. So it was like this. I mean, this happens in every major art or social movement. Mm-hmm. People are like, right now sucks. I'm going to look back to that cool time and ignore all the bad stuff about that time. Yes. So like with uh, fashion. Like with fashion, exactly. (laughs) Like right now, bell bottoms are back. Why? They're terrible. They make your butt look huge. Why would you do that? But people are like, ah, remember the 70s? What a great simple time. Um, So they were looking back at the medieval period and they were like, yeah, everybody died at 30, but everyone made stuff and they loved it. And it smelled really bad. (laughs) It did smell bad. So we know William Morris because he designed a lot of wallpaper. So he's the one who did those block prints of like big flowers and things. You'll see William Morris was really big in the 90s. Okay. So it was like this kind of arts and craftsy flowers and like vines and things. They were like kind of muted colors. I'm thinking about. Yes. Yes. (gasps) H&M right now has a line of William Morris inspired patterns. And they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And they they stand the test of time. Like, they've been popular pretty consistently through the 20th century and beyond. So he began experimenting with various crafts and designing furniture and interiors. Um, he was personally involved in manufacturing as well as design, which was to be the hallmark of the arts and crafts movement. Great. Um, Ruskin, the father of arts and crafts, had argued that the separation of the intellectual act of design from the manual act of physical creation was both socially and aesthetically damaging. Uh, Morris further developed this idea, insisting that no work should be carried out in his workshops before he had personally mastered the appropriate techniques and materials, Hmm. arguing that without dignified creative human occupation, people become disconnected from life. So in 1861, Morris began making furniture and decorative objects commercially, modeling his designs on medieval styles and using bold forms and strong colors like his, his wallpaper. 
His patterns were based on flora and fauna, and his products were inspired by the vernacular or domestic traditions of the British countryside. In order to display the beauty of the materials and the work of the craftsmen, some were deliberately left unfinished, creating a rustic appearance. He had an ambivalent relationship with machinery, alternating between machinery is evil and commissioning work from manufacturers who were able to meet his standards with the use of machines. Okay. Um, so Alan Crawford, who's an author of um, Major Arts and Crafts book, he wrote, unlike their counterparts in the United States, most arts and crafts practitioners in Britain had strong, slightly incoherent negative feelings about machinery. <laughs> Because <laughs> they didn't want to learn. It's kind of like if you have like a great uncle who doesn't want a computer. Yeah, exactly. But he still wants to send an email. Yeah. He's like, you do it. It still means that you're using the computer, Uncle Tim. Sorry. <laughs> so Morris insisted that the artist should be a craftsman designer working by hand and advocated a society of free craftspeople, such as he believed that existed during the Middle Ages. Okay. He said, because guildsmen, guildsmen, exactly, because craftsmen took pleasure in their work. He said, he wrote the middle ages were a period of greatness, the art of the common people. The treasures in our museums now are only the common utensils used in households of that age, where hundreds of medieval churches, each one a masterpiece, were built by unsophisticated peasants. Mm. Uh, medieval art was the model for much arts and crafts design in medieval life. Literature and building were idealized by the movement, as I mentioned before. Also, many of the arts and crafts movement designers were socialists. And in the early 1880s, Morris was spending more of his time on socialist propaganda than on designing and making. Uh, In Britain, the movement was associated with dress reform, ruralism, the Garden City movement, and the folk song revival. So dress reform was the reform in the Victorian period where they were like, you know what's uncomfortable? Corsets. Corsets. So we're going to, and this is where dress reform is where the bloomer came from. We talked about the bloomer a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, ruralism where, you know, living in the country puts you more in touch with your personal, like physical nature. Walden. Yes. Very Walden-esque. And the garden city movement where you bring the nature into the cities. If you can't move out to the cities, you're going to like. So when they started with like cemeteries, incorporating them as like garden cemeteries. Absolutely. Yep. That's, that's along the lines of the garden city movement. And of course the folk song revival is something that we can infer Camptown races sing the song. Exactly. That's from the arts and crafts. (laughs) You're welcome. So all these things were linked in some degree by the ideal of the simple life. So you can kind of see this idea of like the past was so much simpler. We made our own clothes. Mm -hmm. Everyone was happy. Women were definitely not oppressed. Like all this stuff. Sounds a lot like shakers too. Yeah. It's it's this looking back toward a simpler time Mm -hmm. while ignoring the problems of those eras. Mm -hmm. Um, So the spread of arts and crafts ideas during the late 19th and early 20th century resulted in the establishment of many associations and craft communities and 130 arts and crafts organizations were formed in Britain, mostly between 1895 and 1905 and the London department store Liberty and company here to Liberty and company. It was founded in 1875 and was a prominent retailer of goods in the style and of the artistic dress favored by followers of the arts and crafts movement. Cool. So Liberty and Company is still around. Yeah. And Liberty and Company does that very tiny ditzy print floral that you see everywhere. Okay. It's very, very British. I feel like they maybe did a Target collaboration. They did do a Target collaboration. <laughs> this is how I know most no, designers. No, I 100% <laughs> going to mention that. They did a Target collaboration and they made like wellies with the oh, Liberty yeah. print and like button down shirts and pants and skirts and things like that. It's very cute. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a tiny floral print, and they've been around since 1875. Sweet. So in the United States, uh, the arts and crafts style initiated a variety of attempts to reinterpret European arts and crafts ideals for Americans. So these included the craftsman style, architecture, furniture, and other decorative arts, such as designs promoted by Gustav Stickley in his magazine, The Craftsman, and designs produced on the Roycroft campus as publicized in Albert Hubbard's The Fra. Yes, Roycroft campus. Yes. Tell us more. I will tell you lots about the Roycroft campus. Uh, Both men use their magazines as a vehicle to promote the goods produced within the Craftsman Workshop in Eastwood, New York, and Albert Hubbard's Roycroft campus in East Aurora, New York. Um, A host of imitators of Stickley's furniture, the designs of which are often mislabeled the mission style, included three companies established by his brothers. Hmm. So there's Stickley, there's Stickley Brothers. Yes. And then there's Gustav Stickley and Company. Okay. So Stickley and Company is the one that's still around. It's now called the Stickley Audi Company, and they make high quality furniture in the mission style. Right. It's very beautiful. Gustav Stickley was not a not a good or a nice man. <laughs> oh. Um, but his was more commercial. So um his was like, you know, while he and I mentioned this a little bit later, 
um, his style was like he subscribed to the craftsman ideal, subscribed to the arts and crafts ideal, but he really wasn't about the philosophy. Mm-hmm. He was trying to make some money. Albert Hubbard, however, um, was deep into the philosophy and was like a really cool guy. So I will talk about that. But the terms American craftsman or craftsman style are often used to denote the style of architecture, interior design, and decorative arts that prevailed between the dominant eras of Art Nouveau and Art Deco in the USA. Mm. So approximately 1910 to 1925. So the movement was particularly notable for the professional opportunities that opened up for women as artisans, designers, and entrepreneurs who founded and ran or were employed by such successful enterprises as the Kalo Shops, Rookwood Pottery, and Tiffany Studios. I've heard of all of these. Yes. <laughs> uh, while the Europeans tried to recreate the virtuous crafts being replaced by industrialization, Americans tried to establish a new type of virtue to replace heroic craft production, which was well-decorated middle-class homes. Okay. Uh, they claim that the simple but refined aesthetics of arts and crafts, decorative arts, would ennoble the new experience of industrial consumerism, making individuals more rational and society more harmonious. Uh, the American arts and crafts movement was the aesthetic counterpart of its contemporary political philosophy, which was progressivism. Okay. So the first American Arts and Crafts exhibition began on April 5th, 1897 at Copley Hall in Boston, featuring more than a thousand objects made by 160 craftsmen, half of whom were women. Oh, cool. So it's like a big old craft fair. It was. It was a big old craft fair. Um, Albert Hubbard's uh, Roycroft specifically was very like, um, very like super into equality. Mm-hmm. Like everyone wore the same thing. Everyone was treated the same way. It was very like non-gender sort of specific. Commune. It was, yeah, it was, it was actually a commune. Yeah. But like a fun commune of Ooh. like craftspersons. Like a cool commune. Yeah. Um, so Gustav Stickley had his craftsman magazine and that's all well and good, but his influence on the movement was much more aesthetic rather than philosophical. As I mentioned before, he clearly had ideas about interior design, but it didn't really adhere to a larger lifestyle. Not like Albert Hubbard's Roycroft community. So Albert Hubbard, what a guy. Old Albert Hubbard. Oh, so living in Buffalo in his adulthood, Hubbard described himself as an anarchist and a socialist. He believed in social, economic, domestic, political, mental, and spiritual freedom. He said, I am an anarchist. All good men are anarchists. All cultured, kindly men. All gentlemen. All just men are anarchists. Jesus was an anarchist. Huh. Yeah. So his best, <laughs> his best known work came after he founded Roycroft, an arts and crafts community in East Aurora, New York in 1895. East Aurora, beautiful town. Used to go there all the time. There's also Fisher Price. Yep. And uh, who else? Someone grew up there. Millard Fillmore grew up in either East Aurora. Our 13th president in the United States. Yes. Ascended to the office following the death of 12th president in the United States, Zachary Taylor, who died after eating a bowl of spoiled cherries. Thank you, Julia. Please refer back to our first episode. <laughs> Which dead is about presidents. The, dead presidents. Um, East Aurora also houses Viddlers, which is a oh, great five and dime gosh. store. All right. So when I first moved to Rochester, mm-hmm. um, I was living all by myself in a very cold apartment. And I had I the only companionship I had was my television with the antenna. Mm. And the number of times I saw the Viddlers five and dime <laughs> commercial was yeah, insane. With the brothers. So... Viddler's is a five and dime store in, well, you know, nothing's five and a dime anymore, but like a variety store in East Aurora. Aurora, And they, their commercial for it is they take a, they take a video of them walking through the whole store and then set it like at high speed. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is like (laughs) quick motion, like you touring this entire store and it's like, you know, toys and jokes and candy and all this stuff. And they're, their jingle is like a you know it's a like jaunty fiddle it's like three stories there's a there's penny candy you could buy clothes you can buy books you can buy anything kitchen supplies mm-hmm. anything you could possibly want it's very fun and everything is a reasonable price well great um so i'm a, glad I'm a to hear it of viddlers um but we're not talking about viddlers we're talking about so uh, the Roycroft campus still exists in East Aurora. Um, it is no longer a commune, but there is still the Roycrofters who is like a, who are a crafts like group. Okay, um, and you have to be a certified Roycrofter oh. in order to to work under that umbrella. Essentially, and there's a couple of um, there's a copper shop and there's a, a tile shop. They make tiles, Roycroft oh, tiles. Uh, there's an antique store. There's like a whole campus of mm-hmm. Roycroft. 
Um, and there's also the Roy Croft Hotel, which is a beautiful arts and crafts style hotel and restaurant. Great food. And you can walk around there inside um, the hotel in like the main floor and the lobby and things. And it is such a beautiful, my sister got married there. It is such a beautiful hotel. It's so interesting. Like there's all of these like philosophical missives like carved into the beams in every room. It's really gorgeous. We should go. We should go and the restaurants down there are really good too. Anyway, so Roy Croft, (laughs) Albert Hubbard specifically. So, um, so the Roy Croft, community grew from his private press which had initiated in collaboration with his first wife Bertha Crawford Hubbard uh, which was known as the Roycroft Press Um, although called the Roycroft Press by latter-day collectors and print historians the organization called itself the Roycrofters and the Roycroft Shops the inspirational leadership of Hubbard attracted a group of almost 500 people by 1910 and millions more knew of him through his essay which was called a message to Garcia, which was about expressing the value of individual initiative and conscientiousness and work. Who's Garcia? Uh, so it was this um, story about um, a, a soldier in battle and it's like semi-fictional, I guess. Oh. And he writes to a Cuban national whose last name is Garcia. Okay. Um, so the Roycroft creed was, quote, a belief in working with the head hand and heart and mixing enough play with the work so that every task is pleasurable and makes for health and happiness. Aww, Isn't that lovely? That sounds nice. So Hubbard edited and published two magazines uh, called the Philistine and the Fra F R A. <laughs> the Philistine was bound in brown butcher paper and featured largely satire and whimsy. Hubbard himself quipped that the cover was butcher paper because there is meat inside. Isn't that cute? That's clever. So the Roycrofters produced handsome, if sometimes eccentric, books printed on handmade paper and operated a fine bindery, a furniture shop, and shops producing modeled leather and hammered copper goods. And a lot of them still do all of those things. Uh, They were a leading producer of mission-style products. Can you describe mission style furniture so mission style furniture um has so i'm gonna i'm gonna describe a chair let's describe a chair great so it's very wide it has like a wide body Mm -hmm. um the arms of it are very wide it's uh usually made with quarter sawn oak that's like there that's like the hallmark of it Mm -hmm. um and it's very simple it's very low it's very sturdy Mm -hmm. um and uh, a vertical slats it's a lot of vertical slats yep on the sides of both the tables and the chairs they use like leather yeah leather fabric yeah leather it- and fabric um and they're usually polished to a high sheen they're usually stained like dark mm-hmm. dark wood um and they're just really high quality and to this day like mission style furniture is known to be very high quality um and uh the thing with there was a, a visual difference, like an aesthetic difference between stickly furniture, which is like when you think of mission style furniture, you think of stickly style okay. furniture. While Roycroft was still mission style, but it was much more rustic looking. It was a lot more medieval. Like they really okay. like leaned into the medieval thing. Um, so there was a lot of like copper inlay in their mm-hmm. furniture or stone or tile. They were really super into tile. So a little bit more ornamentation. Yeah, just a little bit more ornamentation, but very, very rustic, very mm-hmm. handmade looking, which is the, the what they were going for. Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, and they have a, their emblem is very hard to describe, um, but it's really cool. It's an R with like a, it looks like a, a circle with a cross underneath it. Okay. I'll, I'll post some pictures of Mission Style Furniture and the Roy Croft emblem oh, and all that stuff on our Twitter and um, on our Facebook. Facebook. So Hubbard's second wife, whose name was Alice Moore Hubbard, was a graduate of the New Thought-Oriented Emerson College of Oratory in Boston and a noted suffragist. The Roycroft shops became a site for meetings and conventions of radicals, free thinkers, reformers, and suffragists. Hubbard became a popular lecturer, and his homespun philosophy evolved from a loose William Morris-inspired socialism to an ardent defense of free enterprise and American know-how. So... In 1912, the famed passenger liner, the Titanic, was sunk after hitting an iceberg, as you know. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) So Hubbard subsequently wrote of the disaster, singling out the story of a woman named Ida Strauss, who um, was supposed to be placed on a lifeboat in precedence to the men, but refused to board the boat and leave her husband. Okay. 
Uh, Hubbard then added his own commentary, quote, one thing is sure there are just two respectable ways to die. One is of old age and the other is by accident. All disease is indecent. Suicide is atrocious, but to pass out as did Mr. and Mrs. Isidore Strauss is glorious. Few have such a privilege. Happy lovers both. In life, they were never separated and in death, they are not divided. Unquote. Are they the old lady and man in the movie? I think so. Oh no. <laughs> I know. I Whoa, Oh my god. I probably watched Titanic like 14 times. Really? Yeah. I've only seen it once and I saw it with Andres, my best friend Andres. Oh yeah. And he made it the feel good movie of the year. Like we laughed through the whole thing. But that part, I couldn't help myself. I cried and cried. So, here's the thing. A little more than 3 years after the sinking of the Titanic, the Hubbards boarded the RMS Lusitania in New York City. Yeah. On May 7th, 1915, while at sea, 11 miles off the old head of Kinsale, Ireland, the ship was torpedoed and sunk by the German U-boat U-20. Damn it, I know. His end seems to have followed the pattern that he had admired in Mrs. Strauss. In a letter to Albert Hubbard II, dated March 12th, 1916, Ernest C. Cowper, a survivor of the event, wrote... I cannot say specifically where your father and Mrs. Hubbard were when the torpedoes hit, but I can tell you just what happened after that. They emerged from their room, which was on the port side of the vessel, and came on to the boat deck. Neither appeared perturbed in the least. Your father and Mrs. Hubbard linked arms, the fashion which they always walked the deck, and stood apparently wondering what to do. I passed him with a baby, which I was taking to a lifeboat, when he said, Well, Jack, they've got us. They are a damn sight worse than I ever thought they were. They did not move very far away from where they originally stood. As I moved to the other side of the ship in preparation for a jump when the right moment came, I called to him, What are you going to do? And he just shook his head while Mrs. Hubbard smiled and said, There does not seem to be anything to do. The expression seemed to produce action on the part of your father, for then he did one of the most dramatic things I have ever seen done. He simply turned with Mrs. Hubbard and entered a room on the top deck, the door of which was open, and closed it behind him. It was apparent that his idea was that they should die together and not risk being parted on going into the water. <laughs> I know. Isn't that sad? So the Roy Croft shops managed by his son, Albert Hubbard II, operated until 1938. And finally... Albert Hubbard is the inventor of the phrase, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Did you know that? No. I didn't know that. You mean it wasn't Kris Jenner? No, it was not Kris Jenner. It was, I don't think she's ever said that. I don't think she even knows what it is. <laughs> so um, that is a very truncated version about the arts oh and crafts movement, but I highly recommend the Roycroft campus. It is very beautiful. They have beautiful products, beautiful furniture, um, and really cool. They also make like cards and books, mm -hmm. book binding and things like that. So is Frank Lloyd Wright considered part of this movement too? His early work, like the, um, uh, the prairie style mm -hmm. is definitely within the arts and crafts okay. movement. And then he moved away from that in the, uh, mid teens. Okay. Um, and that's when he was really going for more of an experimental look and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, but yeah, definitely his, Frank Lloyd Wright, his windows and things too were mm -hmm. definitely arts and crafts and he leaned into the arts and crafts philosophy in like a major way. So it's really cool. Yeah, it's cool. So going off the arts and crafts theme, my quiz tonight is uh, arts and crafts, a quiz on crafting and art supplies. Yes. Cause I was so ready to make a ton of camp jokes Great, earlier and now jokes. I get to, Oh, I'm so excited. All right, here we go. Question number one. It's so mean. This kind of embroidery work is freehand embroidery using wool instead of traditional embroidery floss. What is the name of this needlework? Question number two. This art supply company with a man's alliterative name began as a mail order business in 1911 and is still the preferred art supply for many amateur artists. What is this company called? Question number three. What is the name of the style of creating fabric by interlocking loops of yarn using a hook? Question number four. True or false? Tatting is the name of the craft where wool is stabbed repeatedly with a needle, forcing it into shapes and adhering it to itself. Question number five. Name the TV artist who taught us all how to paint, or at least to relax, in 31 seasons and 403 episodes of his show before his untimely death in 1995. Question number six. What is the name of the ceramic material made by heating clay minerals in a kiln of up to 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit? The result is tough, strong, and translucent, and most often used for dishes and dolls. Question number seven. When was felt-tipped markers first patented? Was it A, 1860, B, 1910, or C, 1950? 
Question number eight. This very 1970s craft is making a resurgence in home decor today, even though your grandma definitely had one of these as a hanging plant holder when you were a kid. Name that craft. Question number nine. True or false, the Joanne of Joanne Fabrics doesn't refer to any real person and was chosen because it sounded like a crafty lady. And finally, question number 10. A decal is a decorative technique by which engravings and prints may be transferred to pottery or other materials. But do you know what decal is short for? Is it A, decalcomania, B, decalcification, or C, decalculation? I'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with answers. Question number one, it's so mean. This kind of embroidery work is freehand embroidery using wool instead of traditional embroidery floss. What is the name of this needlework? I don't know. It's called Cruel. Oh, it's like with a K, right? Uh, C, C-R-E-W-E-L, Cruel. C-R-E-W-E-L. Okay. Yep. It's, uh, it had its heyday in 17th century Britain. Um, it can be uh, embroidered onto uh, usually like a linen, yeah. but some people use uh, mesh because it makes it easier. I've heard of it. It's a good um, crossword puzzle word, I yes. think. Yes, cruel is a great crossword great. puzzle word. Okay, question number two. This art supply company with a man's alliterative name began as a mail order business in 1911, and it's still the preferred art supply for many amateur artists. What is this company called? I feel like I can picture seeing it. I can picture it. Okay. Can you? But I can't say it? name it. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, just tell okay, me. Okay, it's Dick Blick. Dick Blick. Yeah, it's now officially Blick Art Supplies. Yeah, I've um, heard of Blick Art Supplies. Yes. So Dick and Grace Blick started it at their kitchen table. Great. Yeah. We're we're wonderful ideas are Our first made. In, invented. Yeah. Uh, question number three: What is the name of the style of creating fabric by interlocking loops of yarn using a hook? Um, um, Lou, wait. Okay, so like when you have like the when you're making a rug, is that okay. what I'm thinking of? Uh, sort of, no, or the pot holders. Yeah, you're making a pot holder. Uh, yeah, I think you're thinking too hard. What say the question again? <laughs> what is the name of the style of creating fabric by interlocking loops of yarn using a hook? It's like hook and mm. loop. Nope, ah! it's, it's crochet. <laughs> it's, it's crochet it's crochet i tried what's I've, the thing with the rug oh i don't know where you have like the grid and you follow the pattern and it's a piece of yarn and you loop it through and you make a you make like a rug yeah you make a rug yeah what's that called? rug making no i don't know i don't know we'll have to google it we'll google it so <laughs> so i've i've tried crochet uh-huh. and i've tried um knitting yeah and i'm bad at both those things i can do one stitch and crochet oh good i made one baby blanket for oh, my for one college roommate, Jesse, and I said, "Congratulations! This is my first and last baby blanket <laughs> that I've ever made because I made it with baby yarn, which is super fine." Yes. So it took me eight months to make this. Oh my god! Yeah. GD blanket. Yeah. I was ever- like, I hope she uses it forever, but yeah. it was like two foot by two. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> well, maybe it's like your special blanket that she carries around yeah. everywhere, like Linus. Yeah. After every breakup, I'd be like, I'm going to start a feminist craft. And I would start like, I'm going to learn how to knit. And then I would try and learn how to knit, which is just trying to tie knots with two long sticks, which is like so dumb. I don't know how anyone invented that. And then I was like, crochet must be easier because there's only one like stick. Yeah. Nope. All Harder. you can do is make scarves and blankets. And I couldn't crochet, even get that really. far. Yeah. So I started embroidery and then I'm good at that. So yeah. there you go. 
Uh, question number four, true or false, tatting is the name of the craft where wool is stabbed repeatedly with a needle, forcing it into shapes and adhering to itself. False. It is false. That's felting. Yes. Uh, tatting is the technique for making durable lace through knotting. Ah. Yeah. That's cool. My um, grandma Novakovic apparently used to make like lace. Oh, that's cool. Um doilies mm-hmm. and like table runners and stuff like that. Yeah. And so we have a whole drawer full of those that so like she Novakovic. Yeah. For she was a tatter. Your grandma. Mary. Mary the tatter. God bless her. Uh question number five. Name the TV artist who taught us all how to paint, or at least to relax, in thirty one seasons and four hundred and three episodes of his show before his untimely death in nineteen ninety five. Well that's Bob Ross. That's definitely I didn't Bob Ross. He died in ninety five. Yeah. He died of um uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, oh, I think, or gosh. something like that. Yeah, it's very sad. And no one even knew he was sick. That was yeah. the thing. He was very private. Mm. Sad. Uh, question number six. What is the name of the ceramic material made by heating clay minerals in a kiln of up to 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit? The result is tough, strong, and translucent, and most often used for dishes and dolls. As a person who works in a museum filled with dolls, I would be remiss if I missed this question and did not say porcelain. It is porcelain. So there are three categories of porcelain. There's hard paste, soft paste, and bone china. And those categories refer to the different compositions of the original Mm -hmm. clay paste. So... Uh, question number seven. Uh, when were felt tip markers first patented? Was it 1860, 1910, or 1950? I'm going to go 1950. No, it was 1910. Ah. So Lee Newman patented, patented a felt tip marking pen in 1910. And in 1926, Benjamin Pashak patented a fountain paintbrush, as he called it, oh. which consisted of a sponge-tipped handle containing various paint colors. That's cool. Markers of this sort began to be popularized with the sale of Sidney Rosenthal's Magic Marker in 1953, which consisted of a glass tube of ink with a felt wick. That's what I was thinking of was the Magic Marker. Yeah. Uh, by 1958, use of felt-tip markers were commonplace for a variety of applications, such as lettering, labeling, and creating posters. And the year 1962 brought the development of the modern fiber-tipped pen, in contrast to the marker, which generally has a thicker point by Yukio Hori of the Tokyo Stationery Company, which later became Pentel. Like when I was growing up, our house called markers, magic markers. Oh, yeah, like yeah. Kleenex, magic markers. Vaseline, magic markers. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that they weren't all magic. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you call a conditioner cream rinse by any chance? No. No, that's we an old it, lady term if right? I ever My heard mom one. Called it, I called it cream rinse until I was like 17. And no wonder it was a like, popular kid. <laughs> They're like, all right, grandma. Did you get some bluing while you were at it? <laughs> no. Cream rinse. <laughs> to this day, I still have like a hard time not saying cream rinse. Wow. It's very strange. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of grandmas, question number eight. This very 1970s craft is making a resurgence in home decor today, even though your grandma definitely had one of these as a hanging plant holder when you were a kid. Name that craft. It's macrame. Macrame, yes. It is a form of textile using a hand knotting technique, and it is hideous. <laughs> I mean, I can see how it, it how it's good for pla- being a plant hanger. Oh, yeah. I guess if you strong. needed to make your own, yeah, then absolutely. sure. Oh, yeah. But macrame, like, oh, my God, blankets, wall hangings, plant holders, vests, like clothing, macrame, handbags, all sorts of stuff. Not for me. Too much. For some people, not for me. No, me neither. Question number nine, true or false? The Joanne of Joanne Fabrics doesn't refer to any real person. It was chosen because it sounded like a crafty lady. <laughs> This is like probably a good thing to know. Yeah. I'm going to say it is a real person. Uh, you are correct. Uh, Joanne is the combination of the founder's daughters, Joan and Jacqueline Ann. Okay. So there you go. It, does sound, it also does sound it like sounds a crafty, like crafty lady. lady. Oh, Joanne, you got to see her down the street. She is a cricket. You wouldn't believe. <laughs> oh, my God. A cricket. Do you remember when those came out? Oh, yeah. Oh they're God. still like locked up behind the counter at yes. like Michael's and stuff. Yeah. No, because you'll sn- <laughs> oh snatched up so quick all right finally question number 10 a decal is a decorative technique by which engravings and prints may be transferred to pottery or other materials but do you know what decal is short for is it a decalcomania b decalcification or c decalculation i'm gonna say decalculation it was a decalcomania See, that was the one i thought it was the least that's what i said so it's for the french decalcomanie which means transfer. And because it was... That's a long word. Yeah. Decalcomanie. And it's... So in English, they... Tra- for some reason, they went with decalcomania, which sounds like... <laughs> like you are... out of their minds. Uh, yeah. 
Decalcomania! Ah! <laughs> oh yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, we have some listener submitted trivia. We do have some listener submitted trivia. So we got a very lovely email from um, a listener named Eric F. Hello, Eric. Thank you. He and his girlfriend listened to our uh, our show. Our show. He called it a show. Isn't that sweet? Ah. Listen to our podcast. So he and his girlfriend um, lived in Rochester for a while and is a big Rochester history buff. Awesome. Um, but he is also uh, in grad school for biology. So he, the, the subject line of this email is big fan of the show and small correction about mad cow disease. Ooh. So, uh, so that was from a question in our like Halloween yes. mini-sode? Yes. And I talked about um, mad cow disease and how I said it was caused by a virus, but it's not caused by a virus. Okay. So he said, it is also not caused by a bacterium, a fungus, a parasite, or any other living organism. And what is it caused by, Eric? I know. He said, technically, viruses aren't alive, but that's a different discussion. I was like, okay, mm. great, thanks. All right. So mad cow disease and CJD, which is the Creutzfeldt-Jacob disease, mm-hmm. which is what it's called, uh, are one of the of a few known prion diseases. So he said, prions are a very interesting class of pathogen. Prion is short for proteinaceous infectious particle although the abbreviation supposedly comes from the words protein infection oh my gosh i've never heard of this word in my life yeah my book did you have a book about viruses and bacteria when you were little no i did not (laughs) i'm sorry i didn't Mm -hmm. i mean i no please tell me what it was like a children's book and it was illustrations and it showed us what like a virus looks like and to this day i can still draw it it's like a kind of like a funny diamond shape with like Oh, spider yeah. legs. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So maybe I did have that book. Maybe you had that <laughs> maybe book. Maybe I did. But I've never heard of this word. No, no. Okay. So he says, anyway, to anyone who studies biology, the idea of an infectious protein is very weird. The scientists who first coined the hypothesis and the word prion, all living things and viruses have genes encoded usually in DNA. Sorry. <laughs> but sometimes RNA that carry the instructions for making proteins. Proteins cannot replicate themselves without DNA or RNA. So to have an infectious protein implies that a protein from one organism can somehow be transmitted to another organism and make more of itself. (gasps) So that's like if the protein in the cow is infected and the human eats that protein. Then then it it gets into the human proteins. So he says, this seems to break all that we understand about how life propagates. Before the first prion was positively identified, the thought that such a protein could even exist was very controversial and many scientists did not believe such a protein was possible. The scientist who finally discovered the prion protein eventually won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1997. (gasps) The same year as University of Rochester alumnus and Obama's energy secretary, Stephen Chu, shared the Nobel Prize in physics. So that's a little info for you. So yet prions do exactly this in each and every one of us. And in most mammals, including cows, there is a protein expressed in the brain called the prion protein. In a healthy individual, we do not know what function, if any, this protein has. It's just there. It's just there. However, in very rare cases, literally one in a million per the CDC, this protein can fold into the wrong shape and become pathogenic. Essentially, it folds so badly that it forms a template, a scaffold, that helps other prion proteins misfold in the same way. So it teaches the other ones. It shows other proteins how to misfold and turn pathogenic. Over years, even decades, this these misfolded proteins form aggregates, clumps in the brain asymptomatically until eventually there's rapid onset of neurodegenerative symptoms and death within a few months. I am horrified. I'm horrified too. It is not known how the proteins cause these symptoms. So they don't know why it happens. You don't know that it is happening. Yep. And then just one day your brain will fall out of your head. Literally. So prion, (laughs) so he says these clumps are so sturdy and stable that it is extremely hard to destroy them. They are highly resistant to heat, radiation, formaldehyde, and proteases. These are proteins that break down other proteins. And they are very abundant in our stomachs and should break down basically any protein we eat. We get fevers partially to raise our body temperature to be less hospitable to viruses, but if we get more than a few degrees above 100 degrees Fahrenheit, it is also very dangerous to our own health. If your body were to try to get rid of prions with a fever, you'd have to get your body temperature up over 100 degrees Celsius, at which point, of course, your blood would literally boil. 
to have a shot at maybe destroying these bad boys. There is no treatment for any prion disease, only great precaution taken to prevent transmission of these pathogenic proteins, which remain infectious long after they kill their host. He says prion diseases are usually transmitted by consuming part of an animal, especially the brain that had a prion disease. The most prion diseases do not easily cross species barriers. A certain form of CJD called VCJD, the V stands for variant, are believed to be linked to the consumption of cows that had mad cow disease. The outbreak of mad cow disease among livestock in Britain were due largely to the practice of feeding livestock leftover meat and bone meal from other previously killed cows. That's terrible. So this is so freaky. (laughs) Other prion diseases include scrapey, a sheep prion disease that causes them to compulsively scrape their bodies against trees, rocks, and fences, and kuru, a prion disease that was once common in the foray people of Papua New Guinea. It literally, it likely began with one individual who spontaneously developed CJD and was spread through the foray people's practice of funerary cannibalism or the ritualistic eating of their dead relatives. The disease was most common among women and children who traditionally ate the brain. They can't. Oh, so good. When the foray stopped this practice in the early 1960s, partially because of action by the colonial Australian government, when it was theorized that cannibalism was causing the disease but because of the disease long incubation period the last victim of kuru did not die until after 2000 the, the government year had 2000. to be like hey guys stop ki- um stop eating your family right, so we're gonna give you a couple coupons for the store <laughs> yeah. why don't you cook yourself a nice meatloaf yeah pretend you can pretend it's your your loved one your grandma's brain <gasps> oh my god so interestingly, since the discovery that Kuru was a prion disease, it had been found that there is a variant of the prion gene among populations where the Kuru epidemic once raged that confers immunity to Kuru. This discovery is being used to understand and possibly learn to treat CJD and other prion diseases. Uh, protein aggregates are also involved in other neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, although it is not understood if they are causal. And they, importantly, are not prion diseases because the protein aggregates are not infectious. He said, uh, (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this essay I threw at you. But regardless of if you do, I love what you guys do. And I look forward to listening to future episodes, especially if there's another baseball one. He likes our baseball one. Aw, that's nice. Isn't that nice? He said, sorry, (laughs) done for real this time. People do like your baseball episode. Yeah. Some people like my baseball episode. (laughs) But yeah, thank you so much, Eric. That was so freaking interesting. Oh my gosh. Prion diseases. That is so cool like, and so I freaky. Knew that's why we don't have haggis in America because of the sheep's lung and they don't, because they think that there's like a sheep's disease yeah. that could come over. Mm-hmm. <sighs> oh my God. Proteins like bad, like, like evil proteins. Happen. So boom. I might what? have it. You might have it. Life is short. Eat whatever chocolate you want. Exactly. Spend your money. Yeah. It's only money. It's only money. Your brain might be doing something weird right now exactly. that we don't know about. And that's what we learned from Eric F. today. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm really... Eric, that really messed me up. Oh, sorry, Eric. Buddy. Yeah, sorry, Joel. Oh, my gosh. So, uh... If you want to tell us more things like this... Please do. <laughs> oh, my God. You can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod. You can find us on Facebook, misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. And we have a website, triple-dub-dot-misinfopod. Com. And you can stream us on a aforesaid website. Website. Triple dot dot misinfopod.com. Uh, you can also get us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or uh, any podcast app you prefer using our RSS feed. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And tell a friend. Thanks so much for listening, guys. <laughs> this was a good, if freaky one, towards and the end. We'll catch you next time as long as our brains are still viable. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>